If you want to keep chapter 3 open ahead of you, that'd be, that'd be good. So, as we've said many times in this series, uh, there's a lot in here about joy and rejoicing. And to recap, Paul wants us, recap the whole letter. So far, Paul has wanted us to rejoice because of the gospel. He rejoices when he sees the Philippians living out their faith. He wants them to rejoice when they see him living out his faith, even though he is suffering, or even if he is suffering because of it. And he sends the two lads home, or he wants to send the two lads home, so he can hear more about their faith in the hope that he will then rejoice even more himself. So lots of joy, lots of rejoicing. And then we come to today's passage, chapter 3. And verse 1 is a bridge verse. He tidies up his words to the Philippians about Timothy and Epaphroditus. And he says, uh, Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Which should be no surprise to us given that all he's been saying thus far. This is, it's as if he's saying, look, uh, folks, the bottom line is rejoice in the Lord. And actually, I think this statement of Paul's is the closest you'd get to an answer if you ask Paul, what's your motto? You see, I think this phrase, rejoice in the Lord, it's actually a phrase which sums up um, Christian spirituality. Within this phrase is everything that a Christian needs to live as a Christian. I mean, that's probably unfair, but it's everything a Christian needs to, uh, to have a spiritual practice. How about that? Let me explain. You see, I think the best way of talking of joy, which we've been talking about for so many weeks, is it's, it's a thing. It's something that you enter into. It's a state of being. And Paul is quite clear about how we enter into it. Through the Lord. And as we've seen in this letter time and time again, Paul indicates that rejoicing in the Lord is ultimately always connected to what he has done for us. If he rejoices in others, it's because their life points to Jesus and to what he's done. He asks others to rejoice in his life, even though he's in prison, because he gets to preach the gospel and people are pointed to Jesus by his life. Circumstances don't matter to Paul. All that matters is the gospel is preached and Jesus is glorified. And of course, Jesus is to be glorified because of who he is and what he has done. And we call what he has done for us, we call all of this the gospel. So to rejoice in the Lord then is a command, I'll slow down here because people will ask me afterwards, to appreciate, understand and experience all of the truth that is contained in the gospel. Let me say that again and expand on it. Rejoicing in the Lord is an active thing. It's something you do. It's done by understanding the gospel, whereby you grab a hold of the main objective data that is the gospel story and thank and praise God for it. It's done by appreciating it, whereby the depth of what you have been saved from and saved into becomes larger and larger, which leads to praise and thanking God. And finally, by experiencing it, whereby this new spiritual relationship you have with the Lord and the practical outworkings of living in the Christian community brings you, and indeed the world around you, many, 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 many benefits, which leads again to thanking and praising God. The gospel is our source of our joy. It's the fuel we need to live 
and to fulfill the ethical, dem- ethical demands placed upon us. And it's only made possible by what Jesus has done. Is it any wonder then that Paul says we should rejoice in the Lord? On the back of this command, Paul then says that he wants to tell us something that he has talked about many times before. And as it turns out, it's something that he's quite worked up about. He's, get, he's a bit angry here, to be honest with you. He says, <clears throat> watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, who are these dogs? Who are these evildoers? Who are these mutilators of the flesh? Well, this harsh language that Paul is using here, he is reserved for some local Jews. Although, so I don't give you any footing to be anti-Semitic, you need to know it's not all Jews that he's referring to. Although uh, our Jewish friends, by definition, reject Jesus as their Messiah and put their hope of salvation in the fact of their own Jewishness, which they express by adherence to Jewish laws, Paul's not talking about them. Yes, we're very different to them. Yes, they reject Jesus. But he's not talking about them here. He's instead talking about what biblical scholars called, I have real problems saying this word, Judaizers. Judaizers. I'm just going to go for Judaizers, right? Judaizers. So these Jewish people, these Judaizers, who continue to mix, or people who continue to mix with Christians, and we see some examples of them, if you want to go check it afterwards, Acts 15 and in the book of Galatians. And what they did was they demanded of Christians, particularly Christians from a non-Jewish background, that they follow the Jewish laws. Most notably, circumcision, Right? so that they may be saved. So they said, if you want to be one of these new Christians, you've got to follow some of our old laws, otherwise you won't be saved. Otherwise you won't be in the people of God. And as we'll see in a second, when you add anything to having faith in Jesus, you are, no matter how good your intentions are, undermining the gospel. And for Paul, that's just oh, that's beyond the pale. Because actually that doesn't just... <clears throat> undermine the Christian faith, it destroys it. A Christian is someone who trusts in Jesus alone for salvation and for life. We are saved and live by faith in the Lord Jesus alone. The minute you add anything to that, you've got a big, big problem. And this is why Paul is on the defense here. This is why he uses such harsh language. And after using this harsh language to alert his readers to the extent with which these people are a problem... Paul then goes on to delineate exactly what is it is that a true Christian believes and lives out of. And firstly he says, it's we who are the circumcision. And this is an odd uh, title, but it's only odd if you don't know your Old Testament well. The story behind the term is fairly simple. In the book of Genesis we read the story of God making a covenant with Abraham. And a covenant is essentially a type of legal agreement. And the stipulations were fairly simple. Uh, God would be their God, and Abraham and his descendants would be his people. And the act of circumcision was the sign that they were included in God's covenant. Some say, is this not a bit sexist, that only the men get to carry the sign? Well, certainly any of them would have married would have known. Any of them who had children or helped with childbirth would have known. And any who were within earshot of when the circumcision was happening would definitely have known what it was. So it's not just a sign for men, it's a sign for all of them. A physical reminder that everyone was aware of, of the fact 
that they were called to be God's people. And so this phrase, the circumcision, is a shorthand way of referring to the people with whom God has, has as his people, right? The people who live knowing that the only true God is actually their God. So Paul is saying in response to these men that actually it's not us. It's, or sorry, actually it's us, not ye, who are the true people of God. We are the ones who have inherited the promises. In fact, I'm not, I, I, I couldn't find out for sure. I don't know if he's been a bit cheeky here, but he's certainly sticking it to them, you know. He's taking a term that is very dear to them, and he's turning its meaning on its head. In fact, it's saying, he's saying the complete opposite. So, and what's more than likely what happened here is, and certainly this is what was happening in Acts 15 and in Galatians, is that these Judaizers have been telling Christians that because of the promises of God to the Jews, are all true believers still had to live under some of these Old Testament laws. And typically, most Christians, Presbyterians at least anyway, have understood the Old Testament law is split in three ways. Moral, ceremonial, and civil. And the thinking is that after Jesus, the civil and the ceremonial law is done away with. They're no longer in force. But these Judaizers are saying that actually some of them still are. You've got to be circumcised, for example. This is what prompts Paul's harsh response because we're, we, we are promised the promises of God by, but anything that we do other than by faith alone undermines that. They want the Philippians to do some extra things to be saved. Paul says, no. It's we, by faith in Jesus, are the real inheritors of God's promises and not you. So what follows next then is three hallmarks of the real people of God. It is we, says Paul, who worship by the Spirit of God. This hallmark can have several meanings, but here's a few. Our worship is not constrained by our ethnicity. So it does not matter if we're Jews or Gentiles. Secondly, in the Jewish system, you, gotta be, you have to be ritually clean to worship God. But if we worship by the Spirit, then our worship is not constrained by our purity. So it doesn't matter, with respect to worshiping God anyway, the degree to which you have lived sinful or holy lives. You can still approach Him. And lastly, and this is what Paul, I think, was referring to the most, in the book of Ezekiel, some of you will remember that God, through the prophet promises that he will give us a new heart and a new spirit that will enable us to follow him. Once again, Paul is using his Old Testament knowledge to undermine the Judaizers and show that actually it's the church made up of both Jews and Gentiles that are now his people. They follow and worship him by the Spirit of God. The next hallmark then, he says, is we are those who glory in Christ Jesus. Christ, of course, is simply the Greek word for Messiah and not, as some people think, Jesus' surname. So when we say, so when he says we glory in the Messiah Jesus, he simply means that we're making a big deal about Jesus. We delight in him. We praise him. We talk about the fact of who he is and what he's done. That is what it is to glory, glorify him. And I should add that in this phrase, there's an element of making the point he's about to make. And that is that when we glorify Jesus, or glory in Jesus, sorry, we're also saying that him, and not anything that we can do, is what brings us salvation. 
That's why I say this phrase means a big deal, not just in who he is, but in what he's done. By acknowledging that our salvation is through Christ alone, we actually end up giving him glory. Any attempt to add anything from ourselves as to how or why we get saved is in effect detracting from Jesus and his work. Lastly, we come to the third and final hallmark from which Paul is going to jump into this bigger discussion. But he says, it is we who put no confidence in the flesh. And simply put, this means that for salvation and for life, we do not trust the qualities, the identities, the good deeds, or even the lack of bad deeds that we all have to varying degrees. I could summarize it as as this. What kind of people we are, who we are, and what we do or don't do. Now, there's a real need to talk about that here because immediately Paul... There's no real need, sorry, to talk about that because immediately Paul launches into this big spiel listing all of his fleshly credentials. These enemies of the gospel want to trust in their flesh. Well, says Paul, I have more to trust in than anyone. According to Paul, he was circumcised on the eighth day, meaning not only was he circumcised, but also he was a Jew from birth not a convert later in life. He was of the people of Israel, meaning he was a pure Jew and not one of mixed stock. There was plenty of those around. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, meaning he came from one of the two tribes that stayed in the southern kingdom and survived the Babylonian captivity, one of only two that could still claim to be pure and have remained true to the cause. He was then, as he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a true member of God's chosen race. But he doesn't leave it there because not only is his identity of impeccable quality, his behavior is as well. He says he was a Pharisee with with regard to the law, meaning he, like the Pharisees, took the Jewish law, 613 biblical laws, and added many, many more. This is what the Pharisees did. They wanted to be sure to follow God's laws, so they parsed them, they delineated them, they wrote down step by step how to keep them, and in the end, they they ended up with many, many more than 613, and they aimed to keep every single one of them. And if you didn't do it, they looked down on you. So firstly, Paul is saying here, excuse me, that the attitude he had to God's laws was like the Pharisees. In other words, he took them very, very seriously indeed. So much so that his zealousness was such that he went as far as persecuting the church. You may remember some of those stories in Acts. Paul did exactly that. And then lastly he says, and when you think about it, this is amazing actually. I'd love to meet a person like this just to study them. He says, as to legalistic righteousness, faultless. So not only was he a real Jew... Not only did he take the high view of the Bible and obedience to it, not only did he pursue the persecution of those who he saw as enemies of the faith, but he actually went and obeyed every single one of those laws the Pharisees laid down. He's some man, right? And he was, in fact, who had a man who had, did indeed have much to glorify in. He was privileged, hardworking, zealous, irreproachable. He had in himself and in his life much that could be used as an excuse for self-satisfaction and self-glorification. But does he? Nope. He says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Now, there's something 
that we need to slow down and think about here. I think it's easy to make a jump to application here, so why don't we? The question at hand is, what is a modern version of this? Let's transplant a Christian, Paul, looking back at his pre-Christian days to today's Belfast. What are the identities, qualities, and actions of a Belfast Pharisee? And how then might he, as a Christian, likewise look back at them and say, I count them all as loss? Firstly, I was going to talk a lot about this, but I'm not, thankfully. The identity question, orange and green. Although it's not just orange and green, is it? I suppose you could add in another colour. I was thinking maybe yellow, but perhaps that's too political, not quite sure. Orange and green and some other colour. Three tribes, two defined by not being the other one, and one defined by not being either. Now, of course, Paul's Jewishness did not make him think he would be saved. I don't think people reckon they would be saved because they are Irish and not British, or British and not Irish, or because they could be either but have chosen to be neither. But at the same time, Paul lived as he did because he was a Jew, and it was these actions that, as we shall see now, he considers a loss. So in the same way, it's very possible that there are many who will come to the gates of heaven, and all they have to bring in their hands is the work they did to unite Ireland or maintain the union, or even the work they did to overcome the divisions within Northern Ireland. Now let me be clear, I've heard Christian rationale for all three of them. But I would, and to be honest, I have in some ways, dropped that thing like a hot coal if I thought it was getting in the way of my relationship with Christ. But like I hinted at, your identity question is probably where most of us will find things um, is not, sorry, where most of us will find things that we need to consider loss. Maybe I'm wrong. You can tell me. I think most people, though, would fall foul of being a modern-day Pharisee in terms of what they have or have not done. It's interesting, actually, when I thought about it, that a modern-day Pharisee, I think they have it harder than the boys back in Jesus' day. Because today, there is, there's so many ways in which we have to perform to be thought of as good. The Pharisees' rule book was big in Jesus' day, but today it's massive. Basic assumptions that people have to have to behave correctly are found in areas of care for the environment, commitment to freedom across the world, equal rights for all, commitment to the poor, good eating, good child-rearing, good-looking, anti-sexist, anti-ageist, anti-ableist, anti-cruelty to animals, anti-litter, etc., etc., etc. And then for religious people, there is... Maintaining our virginity, praying a lot, reading the Bible, doing good stuff, volunteering at church, having a good witness amongst your friends, going to church regularly, etc., etc., etc. Now, I suppose, it's a heavy load, right? I suppose the obvious question here that needs to be answered is, Richie, are you saying that being zealous, being impeccable in behavior are bad things? No, of course not. I would expect to find many of those qualities in some of you, and I know that they are there. But if those things become something that gets in the way of you coming to Christ, then not only are they not good, they are rubbish. That's Paul's view. He is willing to lose all these things. In fact, he does lose them, and more. He's kicked out of the Pharisee group. He is arrested. He had the skin of his back tore off three times by getting the 39 lashes. 
In 2 Corinthians, he tells us that he's a spirit even of life itself. That's how low he was but at, at times, but it doesn't matter to him. What matters is knowing Jesus. And the previous gains that he had, what, he does, what does he consider them now? Nothing. Less than nothing, in fact. Garbage. And I really should have asked Christoph uh, before I said this. I'm not going to say anything, but I should have asked permission. Uh, but the word, if you, you should go look it up. The word that he uses, to, he says in our Bible, I think he says, it's just, did say rubbish? He says rubbish. But the Bible translators have been very coy here. Other translations say refuse, dung, or filth. I'm going to go for filth. That's the closest I can get away with here. The, the Bible translators don't want to upset people. Go Google it. You'll see what I'm talking about. The bottom line is, Paul ain't got no time for what was in the past. All those things matter very, very little to him. And here then is where we come to even the good news. All of that matters little to him because he is something far better than any of it. He is not a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, i.e. being good and doing all those things, but a righteousness that comes from God. He does not depend on his good deeds and his identity to bring him to God, and he still doesn't depend on it. And you know, um, I'm so used to banging the drum about how Christ's righteousness gets in the way of living today, and I'll talk about that in a second, but let me not pass by without saying the clear teaching of this. Paul did not consider himself a Christian because of the good things he did for, for God. He was a Christian because of his faith. Now I know it gets complicated because we're supposed to live good lives and view what he's done for us. But we don't need to have to reach a standard to become a Christian. Jesus reached a standard for us. And we get that standard, that righteousness given to us when we have faith in him. It's a very simple transaction, and yet so many people don't get it or don't want it. I, I remember a guy who used to come to my old church, and I talked to him once about taking communion, and he said, nah, Richie, I'm good enough. Or he says, I'm not good enough, sorry. And I was like, that's brilliant, that's all you need to know, now you can take it. But uh, no, he didn't get it. He thought that you could only be accepted by God if you lived a certain way, which he hadn't. But even if he had... And he took that communion because he thought he was acceptable to God based on what he'd done. He was still lost. A ship can be sunk by having too much gold on board as well as having a few holes in it. Although whatever gold we produce is nothing in comparison to the gold that Christ gives you because this process doesn't just end at our initial salvation. Paul wants to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, he says, but that which comes from God. And what Paul is saying here is that as he relies, not on his own righteousness, he is driven to rely on Christ's righteousness. If you look at verse 10 and 11, a bit obscure, but what Paul is saying is that he wants to be like Christ and to know his power. Totally committed to overcoming sin, totally committed to God, both of which were demonstrated in his death and resurrection. But to do that, he needs a righteousness that comes from God. And here you see is where this teaching about our own righteousness is still important today because the good that we do still gets in our way of relationship to God. How does that work? Well, disavowing our own righteousness and trusting in Jesus instead means we will constantly be led into situations where we have to rely on God. 
and if we rely on our own reputation, our achievements, then we will lead a safe life. We will play the power games that come with politics, and we will not pray all that much. But if we trust Christ, we will face our fears because failures won't have much purchase over us. We will face rejection from others because other people's opinions of us won't matter all that much. We will walk into blind situations because we know that God has united himself to us. And if he wants us to go this way, we will go that way. The bottom line is that if we want to know Christ and his power to be totally committed to God, then we have to trust that God has given us a different righteousness apart from our own. It's a daily thing. Now we've come full circle, you see. You see again why he commands us to rejoice in the Lord. It's a command that only someone who appreciates what's been done for them by Jesus can obey. It's, in other words, a command that only someone who believes the gospel can do. Paul is not interested in what he has done. He's not even all that interested in his failures. He's only interested in what Jesus has done for him. Rejoicing in the Lord, then, is the Christian spiritual practice. It's emotive and coherent. It's weighty and moving. Let's do more of it. Let me pray. Father God, we probably will be fighting out about different ways that we trust in things other than you till the day we die. I ask that you would give us eyes to see what it is you want us to do today and how we can trust you more. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for giving us your righteousness. I ask that over the years we would develop a heart that thirsts to live in your strength and your strength alone. Amen.